This academic year, we have been focused on the theme of discipleship, and I've been focusing my sermons on discipleship of the body. Uh, last semester, we laid seven uh, sermons, seven foundation stones for a building block uh, for a foundation for the theology of the body. We're trying to explore really what is the nature of human embodiment as Christians, and racial identity is very crucial in this journey since our racial identity is part of our embodiment, our biological embodiment. And so we are trying to understand both the theological vision for this, but also uh, moving away from just simply what are we against, but what are we for? What is the grand vision which unites Christians together? Uh, this semester, we're trying to apply a theology of the body to a number of issues. Uh, today, we're looking at the longing for racial reconciliation. Uh, next time, we're looking at the, how the human body is understood in popular media and advertising. It'll be an X-rated sermon. Come and see it. Uh, we'll be looking at the uh, following out theology of the body in relation to homosexual practice and gender reassignment. And finally, the loss of the theology of the body in a way we understand critical thinking, the formation of the mind, conspiracy theories, fake news, all of that. So this semester, racial reconciliation, the advertising industry, homosexual practice, gender reassignment, and fake news. Not bad for one semester, huh? <laughs> My point, of course, is I will not get it all right, okay? Believe me. I think one of the points we want to make about all of these is that we're working together as a community to understand biblical truths on all of this. And certainly when it comes to racial reconciliation or any of the other themes, I may not get it exactly right. But we're trying together as a community to understand God's word and apply it to our lives. A lot of pastors, um, and our movement is famous for this, unfortunately, today, is that when they have a facing controversial issues like this, because we so fear political controversy in our church, what we have is a massive temptation to simply go silent. So a lot of this, and we have the problem also of people who just like become, you know, cultural echo chambers and just echo the wider culture. That problem is also there. But I think that the larger problem for us is that we go into a silent zone. And so sermons become what you might call pious pablum, or what I call the, I, certain, the blah, blah, blah sermons, where you get up and you talk for 20 minutes, but you don't actually say anything. Because if you actually said something, someone might get offended. So one of the, one of the, the uh, one of the, like, I'm saying this in jest, but one of the, like, criteria for leadership in the church is often, can you get up and speak for 30 minutes and say absolutely nothing? If you can, then you are a good candidate for leadership. Because that's really the climate that often prevails today, where you end up with kind of like, I, I don't know, random God talk on Sunday morning, but not really any serious look at how Scripture might apply to the pressing issues of our day. Well, these are issues which are really important. People are talking about it. We don't need to delve into political realities. We can look at the deeper theological, biblical foundations that are underlie all of these issues and address them prophetically and hopefully biblically in the church. Our text today is in Galatians 3, 23 to 29, and this is one of these great texts which speaks to our embodiment and how it has been transformed because of the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Now, verses 23 to 26, uh, we jump in at that point, but he's describing the insufficiency of the law 
unless you understand the law as the, the, the pedagogos, the, the pedagogy, the tutor, the one who would lead us to Christ and the way of faith being revealed to us. And he actually uses the word revealed, apocalyptos, which is used 26 times in the New Testament to refer to how Christ is revealed to us. So he's talking about a revelation of what happens when we as Christians enter into this new sacred sphere that is in Jesus Christ. Now verses 27 and 28 lay out for us three markers which mark out our identity, our new identity in Jesus Christ. And this is true for all Christians of every race, tribe, language, and tongue, and experience, culture, everything. This is, Paul is speaking of a large defining three identities. We might call this the alphabet of Christian identity because it's an A, a B, and a C. We are adopted, we are baptized, and we are clothed. Let's look at these three briefly. First, you are adopted. He says you are all sons of God through faith. Now, if you read that in the English, the word all gets kind of swallowed up. You know, you're all sons of God or children of God in faith, NRSP says. But the word all here, if you look at the original text, Paul moves the word all, the word pontus, and he moves it to the very front of the sentence. What that means is, that means Paul is wanting to emphasize, underline, highlight the word all. This is a very radical all being said here. We are all being called sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear the phrase sons of God, our late modernity ears especially, hears this as an exclusionary word that excludes daughters. And so the the NRS, not the RS, RSV has sons, but NRSV changed the word to children here. But Paul knows the word children. He uses it in Galatians 4.28, children of promise, the word is technon. He does not use the word children here. He intentionally uses the word son, huios. Now, why does he call us all sons of God? He does it because this is the language of adoption and inheritance. You probably know in the ancient world, women did not receive inheritances. Elder sons did. So by calling all of us sons, he's actually asserting, his intention is to assert what we would call today a a radical egalitarianism. This is actually a statement of radical egalitarianism. What he's saying is all of you, men and women, are both equally heirs of the promise. If you are a man in Christ, you are a sonned son, that is, someone who's declared a son. If you are a woman in Christ, you are a daughtered son, since you share in the rights of firstborn sons. So it's the language of adoption. And this is why he says in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, you are all Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So women... Uh, they're adopted and inherited as sons. And of course, men also joyfully embrace that we are part of the bride of Christ. All of these imageries come together in the gospel. Secondly, we're told in verse 27, we are baptized into Christ. Now, one of the themes of this whole series actually has been to help you to, I guess, admit that we have probably underestimated the power of the sacraments in our normal day-to-day thinking about the church and church's life. Certainly in Pauline theology, I think in Wesleyan theology as well, baptism is not merely a demarcation line separating your previous life as unjustified sinners 
and your life now as sinners but justified. It's more profoundly the signification of an eschatological movement which transfers you from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son. And this has enormous importance for us because what it means is we're not simply saying that in the new creation we'll be reconciled. Like, you know, in the sweet by and by, we're all going to get along together then. That allows us the space to put off reconciliation between races or genders or anything else to the future. But what he's saying is, no, the new creation breaks into the hard reality of now. Amen? And so because the new creation breaks into the now, we can't put it off. We can't say, well, someday we'll all eat together in the eschaton. We have to eat together now because it's breaking in now. So when you're baptized, you don't just cross a line, you enter a kingdom. When you're baptized, you don't just receive a a forgiveness, you receive an inheritance. When you're baptized, you don't just leave the past, you enter the future. When you get baptized, you don't just step out of a wicked space, you step into a sacred space. When you're baptized, you just don't have something forensically declared of you, but something eschatological happens to you and in you. This is the gospel. And that's why Paul beautifully plays out with this chronos kairos. This is not so much a chronos thing, a, a time thing, chronology, where we'll someday in time get to the new creation the way we think of it, But he's talking about a kairos where that sacred space in the future is breaking into the now. And it's therefore must be observable by the the world. They must see us living it differently than the world. All of these things are coming out. This amazing identity. And all of us should rejoice this morning of our identity in Jesus Christ. So adopted, baptized, and then clothed. Clothed is one of these great images It's probably the most dominant image of the New Testament regarding salvation that we never actually use and allude to in our normal preaching. It's a very big theme in the prophets and the Old Testament. It gets brought over in Colossians and Romans and other places. The question is, what is the difference between, what is like the value added between the language of baptism or adoption and now being clothed? This is a really important point. It's actually a really important point, especially for Wesleyans, because it's one of the things that we raised our hand about and said, hey, don't forget this after Reformation. And that is, is that as wonderful as adoption and baptism are for us, the clothing is identified in Scripture with the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now, this is really important. By the way, uh, Craig Keener has done so much great work on this point about the language of clothing being connected to the spirit clothing. Remember how Christ himself said, wait in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high? And there's so many examples of this. Clothing is part of the spirit's work, which is the humility of saying, we don't know how to get it right. We may not get our words right. We may may fumble around a lot of these things that we're called to, but the spirit of God can in fact transform us change our hearts, change our lives, change our orientations. We love the fact that in the, in the uh, Reformation, Luther gave us this image, which is a great image of us being condemned sinners fleeing to the cross. Now, it's a good image. We should never forget that image. I mean, I want to think about my life as a sinner who has no hope unless I, as a condemned sinner, flee to the cross of Christ. 
But the point is, what our movement would say is the second half of the gospel. Great! Hallelujah! We are all condemned sinners fleeing to the cross. But what happens when we pass through the cross? We leave, go out as transformed disciples into the world. So the whole point is there's a justification of being transformed sinners, I mean, uh, justified sinners, but now a transformed sinners living out the righteousness of God in the world. This is the real power of this text. It, it is remarkable. Now, we now come to the verse 28, which is uh, so beautifully read today, and the way it was read, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, many have noticed that verse 20, this is, that's verse 28 just read, that verse 27 kind of goes seamlessly into verse 29. You can read the whole passage and take verse 28 out. And the reason is because verse 28 is almost surely a formulaic sentence inserted in. That's to say, this is something, we find this in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul inserts it. He asserts it in Colossians 3.11, all in slightly different forms. Like Colossians, for example, here there's no Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all in all. It's almost certainly part of the early baptismal liturgies. So what he's calling is a formulaic phrase that they would all know that when you were baptized in the early church, they were coming from Jew and Gentile background, slave free, all these things he's mentioning, and they wanted you to know at your baptism that you were entering into a new identity in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's the most amazing thing. And, this, and today, of course, identity politics and all of the kind of political world has divided us and put us at war with each other. So here Paul is saying a new reality because they had the same dynamic in the ancient world. It's exactly what we face today. And he says there's something new. Notice that he mentions these three defining uh, phrases, Jew, Greek, slave-free, male, female. They are not randomly chosen. Think about it. Jew and Greek is a reference to one's ethnic identity. Male, uh, sorry, slave-free is about your social status. And male, female, of course, your gender identity. So here in this text, Paul, a man in the first century, speaks right into our time as well because it was also a huge issue in his day and speaks at the three ways we normally think about ourselves, how we define ourselves, how we stereotype others and look at others through their ethnicity, their social status, and their gender. And Paul is blowing all that away, saying there's something, I mean, what he's saying, being in Christ is so powerful, so determinative, so transforming it has the power to supersede, as we'll see, not, not obliterate, but supersede our ethnicity, our social stature, and even our gender. Now, isn't that amazing? Now, what are the implications of this for us today? Today, by the way, is the one-year anniversary. It's actually one year ago today that Ahmed Arbery was killed on the streets where he was jogging. That was one year ago today, uh, March 13th, just a a few uh, weeks from now was when Brianna Taylor was killed, and the first anniversary of that, and then March 25th, George Floyd. So it was a year ago at this time that something was beginning in our country. Some three, and of course there are hundreds of examples, but these three almost 
came together in a pretty powerful way that really pointed out something that the culture has been struggling to know how to respond to. Uh, we, along with the rest of the nation, I mean, were deeply moved by all that happened. And the, I think the eight minutes and 46 seconds uh, on May 25th when we watched on television George Floyd's death, it was a very shocking, shocking moment for us as a nation. I thought at the time, I think we've come a long way from MLK's Jr.'s more hopeful phrase, I have a dream, to uh, George Floyd's last words, I can't breathe. What it told me and perhaps told you is that though I don't know really what the journey looks like, and we're still trying to figure it out, but certainly it told me that we have unfinished business. We have work to do. We have good gospel work to do. Because certainly I believe that the new creation is not being fully manifest in the church to show the world a stunning alternative to what is happening. We have to admit that this unfinished business is not something just out there, but also we as a community. I am thankful that Asbury uh, was, led the way in so many things early in our history. We where we, we desegregated Asbury several years before University of Kentucky. We have some moments in our history where we had some great moments where we've addressed these issues, but we've also have so much we've neglected that we have to address as a community. We've had a lot of uh, listening groups, the Be the Bridge groups, had some wonderful two different um, focus groups I was a part of with the African-American students, and we also had one with all of our African-American trustees and as well as various forums with our faculty and, uh, and trustees as a whole. At, at one point in the fall, I produced, a, uh, or, or we produced in the cabinet, a major document called Asbury's Response to Racial Inequity, and we actually purposely framed it uh, on that, uh, that language of the, of the negative, racial inequity, because we wanted it to be a document of repentance, which it is, but also we framed it also as we moved through it, uh, as a, a vision or a journey, and I emphasize journey toward racial reconciliation, which is the positive Christian vision of what we hope. Uh, that eventually led to a, um, a document which, what we've done is we've taken that initial document, which has now been received by the trustees and by the community as a whole. The staff did some great work on it here and the faculty, and all of that's been put through uh, our system here, but we eventually created like a roadmap for every single sector of the seminary, from admissions to advertisements to scholarshiping to uh, how we hire faculty. I mean, everything you can imagine. We, every, there's not a single vice president of the seminary was not given a roadmap saying, this is your roadmap for your area. And all of the cabinet, in a wonderful service that we had, uh, publicly affirmed their roadmap. And they, this is now part of their, you know, my oversight of their work. And so I believe that as a community, we are working in some wonderful ways. And we have a, this is not something that we can just turn a knob. This is a process. This is a journey. This is more repentance. This is listening. This is thinking and living together better. But the whole point is we want to see something about the Revelation 7-9 vision, which, Paul, which John had. Because when John has the vision and he sees people that are in Christ, that are adopted, baptized, and clothed, he does not see in that vision a kind of like a new creation blob. 
he actually sees people in their particularity, right? He says, I've looked up and behold, I saw men and women from every tribe and tongue and language and people. So he is seeing everyone in their particularity, which means that in the new creation, we don't like shed off and become some kind of like, whatever, generic blobs. We become, we are a, we're a new creational redeemed in our particularities. It's very, very important. That's why Christians have to have a unique contribution to what we say in this, in this uh, whole conversation. Because this is an issue which affects not just our country, but the world as a whole. There are 2.4 billion Christians in the world. Surely we have something to say as recipients of divine revelation. Let's go back to our text and look at uh, th uh, several things that I think apply to our situation from this text. First, the radical all of Galatians 3.26. Now, the Wesleyan understanding of this, I think many Christians, not just Wesleyans, but especially our kind of sector of the church, have understood that Paul's implication of this, when he says all are now son declared sons in Christ, it is a potentiality in this. In other words, he is speaking to the church, and the church was being filled with Jews and Greeks and slave and free, male and female. All that was happening. But it, by, by, by extension, it means potentially anyone can be a part of the people of God. That's Psalm 87. Now, because of that, it, it really is connected to the universal dignity rooted in the image of God. Now, this particular text, Galatians 3.26 does not explicitly use the phrase image of God, but it's really important to notice what he does. Now, in the NRSV, or the RSV, it says there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. Notice the third pair, he doesn't use the word or. He doesn't say Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. He says male and female. Now, why is that important? It's important because he is explicitly drawing from the exact language in the Greek text of the Septuagint in the creation account where he breathed into us, made us male and female. He's bringing us back to the creation, saying just as we were created in the first Adam, which brought all of this disaster and ethnic division and hatred and racial brokenness and sexual brokenness, and all of these things have happened in our bodies, he is saying, in Christ, we now have a new lineage. We're now brought together under the second Adam, Jesus Christ. In this particular phrase, the image of God, if you remember, it, it just explodes in Genesis, right? It just feels like the first chapters of Genesis over and over again, the image of God, image of God. It's used in Genesis 9 in that little recap passage and then never, ever mentioned again. So the whole Old Testament from Genesis 10 onward through Malachi, the phrase image of God never appears. All we're met with is the opposite, the image meaning idolatry, brokenness, all of the ramages of sin. It's like the whole of creation is groaning in all this brokenness, waiting for something to break in that could change it. And so suddenly in the New Testament, the phrase image of God is brought back explodes everywhere, now it is seen in the face of Christ. Christ is the image of God, and he's now recreating that, refashioning that in all of us who belong to him. In fact, in the parallel passage in Colossians, 
where he has the same uh, inserted phrase about Jew, Greek, slave, free, etc. He actually says there, you've been clothed, there's the clothing with a new self, which renewed according to the image of its creator. This is one of the places where the, it comes back. So why is this important? This is really important because for Christians, the image of God is the most important doctrinal foundation stone for the universal dignity of all, pe- all persons everywhere. This is important for criminal justice reform. It's important for how we understand policing, equity and policing. All of these things are connected to the image of God. Now, these also, if you are looking out of the world as a Christian, even if someone is a prostitute, an atheist, a Republican or Democrat, a Muslim, someone who practices homosexuality, someone who's an immigrant, a Wall Street tycoon, someone who's chosen to change their gender, someone who has kneeled or not kneeled at a football game. I mean, I could go on and on and on. All of those things, we still affirm the dignity of all of those persons. That is the nature of Christian uh, affirmation of the human person. It is wrong, always wrong, to dehumanize anyone for any reason, even if we radically disagree with them, because that is basically to say, say what God has called very good, to look and say we call it not good. Now, therefore, to be a racist is to essentially move into a place that is a broken from the new creation vision. Now, Craig Keener has beautifully said, I'm quoting Craig twice today, so Craig, if you're out there, I'm with you, brother. Uh, Craig Keener made this great statement in one of his books I read. He says, listen to this, the church, no matter how powerless in a given society, now I know that today is a big narrative, how powerless the church feels, we, we get that, we feel that. He's no matter how powerless in a given society is the guardian of the culture. Just as the presence of the righteous in Sodom was the only factor that could have restrained judgment, the fate of a culture may depend ultimately on the behavior and faithfulness of believers in that culture. That's why Sodom would have been saved if they only had 10 righteous. It wasn't about the presence of the wicked, the absence of the righteous. The point is, we don't have to wring our hands hoping that Washington, D.C. is going to pull all the levers right. They won't. It's the church which must embody these things in radical, transformative ways. I actually believe that the Imago Dei, the image of God, is a more secure foundation than anything we find today in the wider cultural conversation. Because at least before, in a century back, we had natural law in the culture, which was at least theistic and creational, but now is Jeremy Bentham's The Greatest Good for the Greatest Number. That's the basis of human dignity in the water culture. But there are many scenarios where certain minority groups can be disenfranchised on the basis of the greatest good for the greatest number. The advantage of the Imago Dei, the image of God in Christian theology, is that it is an ontological dignity, not a situational one. That's a huge contribution that we make. Secondly, in Christ. Now, Paul uses this phrase twice in our passage, verse 26 and 28, and there's several big implications of this. Now, in our country today, we use the phrase a lot that we're a divided country. It's, of course, true. But I believe that behind all of that, 
there are demonic forces. This is, this is a lot bigger than Republican and Democrats, far left, far right. Nancy Pelosi, really? It's a lot worse than Nancy Pelosi or anybody else like that that we, you know, tend to, people tend to, to uh, get onto, or anybody you can think of, you know, Ted Cruz, whoever. The point being, there are demonic forces wanting to rip our nation and world to bits. So Paul says something quite profound in all of his writings. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Actually, one of the great contributing points is that we believe in the universal sinfulness of all humanity. And that's really, really important because sinful, universal sinfulness is the way you get away from the idea that there is a righteous group and there's a wicked group. Now, one of the classic problems that happens, the journey of the Old Testament, was they saw themselves as the righteous and all the nations were wicked besides them. It was like an us and them. Well, then gradually, as the text rolls on, they realize it wasn't that clean, wasn't that nice and tidy. In fact, it must be just a remnant of Israel that's righteous and everybody else's is wicked. Well, then you kind of get to Micah 4, that very chilling passage where even the priests are taking bribes and the, the prophets are given divination for, for money and all of that. It's realizing, oh my goodness, where are there any righteous? And finally, we come to the one, this is the whole season of Lent, the one true Israelite standing alone in the Jordan River. That is the turning point of all of this. When we finally realize there is no one righteous, there's only one true Israelite standing alone in the Jordan River, Jesus Christ. He is the only righteous one. And righteousness comes in him. Now, this is transforming. Because what this means is I don't have to put myself in the righteous group and everyone else or that group or this group are all in the wicked group. This happens a lot today. Republicans villainize Democrats. Democrats villainize Republicans. Men and women are at war with each other. Blacks against whites. Immigrants against native-borns. Blue states, red states. Who watches Fox News? Who watches CNN? The poor, the rich. On and on and on. All of it designed for the MAD, the mutually assured destruction of the other group. That's where we are. Whereas the Imago Dei and the universal sin are the great equalizers. And one of the signs for this is actually the difficulty our culture has had in knowing which statues to tear down. I think everybody here, most would probably agree that if some a statue, and we'll say a statue was there, that uh, was put up that was from someone whose life embodied the belief in the dehumanization of another person, take the statue down. We, we get that. But the point is, it's difficult to know where to stop, right? So when you have statues of George Washington or, I don't know, Francis Scott Key's statue was taken down, it raises the question whether we have the capacity to look at the world in the way the gospel does, which sees us all as sinners. If you can only have a statue, if a statue can only be up if that person is not a sinner, then, of course, we should tear all statues down, including John Wesley and Charles Wesley on our campus. Tear them all down because they're all sinners. So one of the powerful things of being a sinner 
and realize that we're all sinners is we have the nuanced ability to look at someone's life as a whole. One of the challenges today is that we have to see people as three-dimensional people. Yeah, they're sinners, but look what God has done. That We'll see at the end of our service today when we sing this song from a slave trader, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and wrote our hymn today. Gandhi, of course, in, the, in India, is a revered figure. I think his statue is in probably almost every town of India. He also believed in the caste system, which was an evil, is an evil. You see, that's the challenge of this. We have to understand that the Bible gives us these gifts of universal sinfulness and the Imago Dei, and also enables us, because of universal sinfulness, the capacity to forgive, the capacity to reach for redemption. If you've ever seen that movie, it's also a book, I've read the book, and it involves the, the movie, The Best of Enemies. It's a very powerful story of the reconciliation between a person in the KKK, a rabid, rabid, open, just venomous racist, with a woman that was committed, a black African-American woman committed to racial reconciliation. She was a civil rights leader. And the movie is primarily about, I would say 90% of the movie, appropriately so, is about his slow journey to recognize her personhood, indeed the personhood, the, the dignity of all black people, leading up to his famous vote where he goes against the Klan and votes in this power of reconciliation. So it's a move, a story, and it, it, it by itself, it would have been a fabulous movie. It was just about the journey of a KKK person to be reconciled to a black female civil rights leader in the, in the middle of the 60s. But what the movie goes on, because once that happened, he became the object of derision in the white community. He became the wicked. He became the other. He began to be persecuted. And the end of the movie shows her movement to recognize him in new ways. See, that's the power of the whole thing. There is a double conversion in the gospel where two people meet and we recognize that we're both sinners and yet both invited into the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ.